0: The First World War, particularly the Gallipoli campaign, arguably played a significant role in the development of a New Zealand identity. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme explores the commemorations of the war's centenary, which have already begun in earnest and will continue for the next four years, with planning expected to reach a fever pitch in April next year. It's been only three months since the outbreak of the First World War centenary commemorations. Yet in that time, dozens of events have already taken place all around the country to remember a war of which there is no one left who has any personal memory. Many millions of dollars are being invested in a remembrance of the Great War, the war supposedly to end all wars. I'm Gail Woods, and this insight looks at what it is that's being remembered, why it's being remembered... And whether the lessons of the past are being ignored at a time when New Zealand is yet again committing to involvement in a Middle East conflict. Just over a week ago, the Prime Minister John Key stood alongside his Australian counterpart Tony Abbott at a reenactment of the departure from Western Australia in 1914 of a combined force, what became known as the Anzacs. They were leaving to join the British Army in its fight against Germany and her allies.
1: In a matter of months, the Gallipoli offensive would tragically claim the lives of more than 11,000 New Zealand and Australian troops. Another 24,000 would be wounded.
0: The heartfelt sentiment about Gallipoli held by both New Zealand and Australia grew from a renaissance of interest in the First World War that began relatively recently. This year's Anzac Day, the 99th, drew a large crowd to the Cenotaph in Wellington. But the huge interest in such ceremonies has grown relatively recently. That many people rise at a very early hour on a public holiday to attend Anzac Day services is valued highly by the Returned and Services Association its immediate past president Don McIver says particularly significant for him are the changes in the makeup of those turning out for dawn services.
2: 20 years ago you would have seen second world war people there and they would have been the predominant group within a commemorative environment. Now you look out at dawn parade at the faces that are there and you see young children and you see teenagers and you see young adults so we're getting a spread across the community which we didn't have before and that's what I see as being very positive.
0: Why are they there do you think?
2: I think we, had, we went through a process where we were heavily involved in conflict, right through to Vietnam even, maybe Afghanistan even. But And Vietnam especially did leave a bad flavour in the mouth of many. And I think people drew away. And then we saw people starting to say, but this is our history and these are our people, and we shouldn't draw away from what they uh, provided in terms of service for the country. Whether the country liked the, the reason for the service or not, they shouldn't have been blaming individual service people who went.
0: A long-time newspaper and magazine columnist, Rosemary Macleod, was part of that generation which drew away and took a dim view of ANZAC commemorations. They began having demonstrations,
3: uh, counter-demonstrations and so on. I, look, I must say that always worried me at the time because I, I did respect those old men and it seemed unnecessarily hurtful to me. I suppose they looked on us wisely as fathers and grandfathers as they probably were as you know, young people are idiots, one day they'll be less idiotic. But it must have been hurtful, but we were young and unimaginative about that. And um, I mean, I was certainly a demonstrator against all sorts of things, Um, a duffel coat wearer. Uh, But uh, I wouldn't have demonstrated against those poor old boys. But Another point I'd make is that we did associate the returned soldiers with a level of conservatism in our society, a level of inflexibility and values imposed on us that many of us would have thought were obsolete. So we saw them as a reactionary force and that was really what we were on about, not the fact
0: that they'd gone away and fought horrible battles. And historian for the Defence Force, John Crawford, is another who believes antipathy towards Anzac Day services in the 1960s and 70s was tied up with the strong anti-war sentiments of the time.
4: In that particular period, and it has a lot to do with the radicalisation related to the Vietnam War, and a whole lot of other things about you know changing New Zealand society, um, breaking the grip that the Second World War generation had on public office and the control of the key institutions in New Zealand. So that... You've got to look at the bigger picture here. Uh, and I also think people, it, I, you know, when I look at material from that time, it really strikes me that people seem to discount the seriousness of the First World War and the Second World War. You know, these are big events, but, you know, really important issues lay at the heart of both wars. And it all seems to
0: go to, for naught. renewed interest in the war was sparked by the emergence of new literature and movies in the 1980s, such as the Australian film Gallipoli. John Crawford from the Defence Force says that, along with greater ease of travel, led to a certain fascination for Gallipoli, and for many young New Zealanders and Australians, a visit to the peninsula became and remains part of their OE. It did start in the 80s, you've got, you've got a
4: range of things occurring, and they sort of, drove an interest but I think also during the 1980s people were aware that the First World War veterans were dying and that prompted quite some activity and I think also in the 1980s again people were wondering you know what does it does it mean to be a New Zealander and when you start looking at that question the First World War is it, the natural place to go the whole idea of New Zealand's national identity being born at Gallipoli and things which is something I don't hold with actually but um, it's quite a pervasive idea. My view about the role of Gallipoli in New Zealand, development of a sense of nationhood or whatever is, that yes, it is a significant point, but a sense of nationhood had been developing for a long time before that. And I've done quite a bit of work on the South African war, and when I look at the diaries and letters of South African veterans, or soldiers at the time, they are pretty conscious of being New Zealanders. And for that period, and it starts before then and carries on for a long time after the First World War, you get this idea that New Zealanders were proud to be British and even more proud to be New Zealanders, where there's all the best of the best. And that's an idea that sort of falls away maybe around the Second World War, you know. but it, it's there for a long time. So it's a complex business, this idea of developing a sense of national identity.
0: A former New Zealand representative to the United Nations, Tom Larkin, who began his long career in the diplomatic service in 1946, views the current commemorations from a long personal historical perspective, including serving in the New Zealand Navy in the Second World War. He was born in 1917, shortly after the catastrophic Battle of Passchendaele, where New Zealand suffered its most disastrous loss of life, 800 deaths in one day. While he was too young to remember the war itself, for a young Tom, there was a special connection.
5: I was christened Thomas Cedric, and the Thomas are uh, uh, named after my uncle Tom, who was killed in the last days of the war, and uh, was said to be a, a very fine person. I have f- photographs of him that um, revealed somebody of rather imposing physical stature. He won a military medal, and he was killed in the last days of the war, and... That was a source of great grief to my mother, who said that his death was the only trouble he had caused anybody.
0: Did they talk a lot about him?
5: Yes, quite a bit. As you were growing up? Quite a bit. But it was was a sort of mythologised version of him. So he's, he's always seemed to me to be the sort of person I would have loved to have had as a a real, live uncle.
0: Mr Larkin says while the family talked about his uncle, he doesn't recall remembrance of the war itself on anything like the scale of more recent years, although he points to one particular activity during his school years in New Plymouth.
5: I do remember that at Central School we had a, a procedure which was known among the pupils as saluting the flag and once a week we would be paraded and everybody would salute the flag. Uh, so there was this regular commemoration in that sense. I really don't remember too much about ANZAC days in, uh, in that period.
0: He says, however, the sacrifices of the generation who fought in the war became apparent to him during the 1930s.
5: I do remember very well the incidents of the of Depression And then subsequently I've read uh, accounts of of those years and uh, particularly one passage in Bill Sucher's book on the quest for security in New Zealand impressed me enormously when he talked about the ranks of the unemployed who were demonstrating against the privations they were experiencing and the ordinary public being aware from having watched them as they marched in the formations that they'd been taught during the war, that the public then came to realise that the people who were causing them a certain amount of irritation because they were protesting in the streets were exactly the same people that they had admired so much for their efforts in World War I.
0: John Crawford from the Defence Force also acknowledges the ongoing sacrifices of those soldiers. Well, I think the
4: generation that went off to fight in the First World War was a very unlucky generation. They go after the First World War, they come back to New Zealand, the 1920s are not good in New Zealand economically, things are pretty bad. And then, of course, along comes the Great Depression, it gets even worse, and then you get the Second World War. And, of course, by that time, a lot of the First World War veterans had uh, sons or the right age to go after the Second World War. So, how unlucky.
0: In September, Otago and Southern dignitaries gathered in Dunedin to commemorate the departure of troops from the city in 1914 with a street parade through the octagon to the city's historic railway station. Transport of the time, marching troops and red cape nurses in period costume, accompanied by brass and pipe bands, gave a flavour of how Dunedin's sons and daughters in some cases marched off to war all those years ago. <laughs> The Dunedin event was the first commemoration of the war for the city, but there will be more as the centenary continues to mark other significant battles and events. Many others such commemorations are planned and are taking place all around the country. Don McIver from the RSA has also been part of the Government's First World War Centenary panel set up to steer the commemorations program.
2: There are community projects around the country and they range from parades to uh, renewal of memorials to the development of uh, appropriate cemetery memorials uh, uh, to arts events like uh, theatre shows like music and so on all of those things being developed around the First World War Centenary I think they're marvellous there's a significant number of events now being uh, prepared
0: The commemorations are being overseen largely by the Ministry for Culture and Heritage through its First World War Programme Office WW100 a joint venture with four other government agencies its Chief Executive Lewis Holden says just over $1 million a year has been budgeted for the office
1: Through Government funding and through lotteries funding, you're talking about a programme in the order of, yes, $25 million for the WW100-type activities.
0: The commemorations' key project is a memorial park in Wellington, linking the existing Tomb of the Unknown Warrior, the Hall of Memories and the National Caribbean. The development of the park, expected to be open next year for the 100th Anzac Day, is estimated to have a final cost of $12 million. The traffic underpass needed so that the park could be built has an estimated cost of up to $75 million. Lewis Holden believes such significant commemorations are important to understand the impact of the First World War on New Zealand.
1: While one's got to be a little bit careful about the sort of mythologising of, oh, this is where we forged our national identity, there is some truth to that. We went into the war because Britain went into the war, but at the end of the war, we had a seat at the table uh, at Versailles in our own right. It had a huge influence on our multilateralist uh, traditions. It led directly to our active support of first the League of Nations concept and then after the Second World War the formation of the the United Nations. So I think in terms of that New Zealand's place in the world, it sowed the seeds for who we are today and how we conduct ourselves on the global stage today.
0: Mr Holden does acknowledge, though, that for some, four years of commemorations may be a bridge
1: too far. There is a possibility of fatigue. I have to say it doesn't look like that from where I sit. What we're finding is there are already 700 community projects that uh, have been supported, and that's not come from government. That's come from local communities saying, we want to do something in this space, can you help us? That number is building all the time. The, the main emphasis is around 2015 at this stage, but we are already starting to see a lot of interest in subsequent events as well.
0: In Britain, commemorative events began on August the 4th, with the royal family playing a leading role. The centrepiece of those commemorations has been the planting of 888,246 ceramic poppies in the moat around the Tower of London, each poppy representing a British or Commonwealth soldier killed during the war. The last poppy will be planted on Tuesday, Armistice Day, the anniversary recalling the end of the war on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. The beginning of the centenary in Britain prompted one British writer to describe it as a military propaganda opportunity in which so-called lessons learned have been ignored or forgotten. The Guardian columnist Simon Jenkins wrote that the commemorations had lost all proportion, becoming a media theme park, an indigestible cross between Downton Abbey and a horror movie. Furthermore, it was he despaired to continue for four years. It's not a view shared by a British historian, Richard Grayson, a professor of 20th century history at London's Goldsmith University. Professor Grayson says the opening salvos of the first month of commemorations are unlikely to be sustained. We're clearly going to see peaks of interest
6: at certain points. And I think in the UK, probably the largest peak will be around the 1st of July in 2016 for the Battle of the Somme.
0: Professor Grayson also chairs the academic advisory group for the Imperial War Museum's digital projects, including an attempt to gather information on everyone who served to create an online permanent memorial with heavy involvement from members of the public.
6: The other is Operation War Diary, which is a project where um, enthusiastic members of the public, of which there are thousands, tag war diaries to look at the activities of units on a day-to-day basis. Hopefully that will enable us to get a really accurate view of what soldiers were doing on a daily basis throughout the war.
0: Why is that important? Are you trying to get people to kind of relive the war?
6: I think we're trying to get people to engage with the war in all its dimensions. It's not exactly reliving, but uh, it is recognising that although we hear about the dramatic aspects of... The war. I think in particular in the UK that would be the first day of the Battle of the Somme and Passion Day, those would be the two most well-known events of the fighting of the war. Uh, it's about getting people to recognise that most of the war wasn't like that.
0: Establishing a better understanding of the war has been the aim of some historians for many years. Some have argued that knowledge of the First World War in many cases is confined to the British comedy series Black Adder. Professor Grayson says that's a very limited view. Well, it's not good history,
6: and there are many supposedly informed people who uh, appear on the TV talking about the black of view of history. So, for example, I was watching the BBC uh, News Channel the other night and there was a journalist on talking about the working class having been killed and the officer class having given out orders. Well... <laughs> And, and people will accept that because it's somebody supposedly who knows something about this, who's on the TV, putting out a view that just feeds an inaccurate view. The most dangerous part of the British Army or the most dangerous place to be in the First World War was a junior officer, the officer class, the, the public school boys who um, served with a, a sense of honour and duty and were were the sons of those giving out. The orders in lots, of, well, in lots of cases, sons or grandsons, but I just th- I think it's um, hugely demeaning to those who served when you have inaccurate views of the past being put out like
0: that. Professor Grayson says another often stated view of the war was that the soldiers were lions led by donkeys, the officers in charge. But he says Blackadder is not all wrong.
6: It's problematic because it leaves people with a view, that, for example, that men lived in trenches all the time. Well, they didn't. They were at the front line about one week every month in an in an infantry battalion. But Blackadder uh, still, I think, has a truth within it, which is about the horror of m- moments of battle, moments of death. The emotions that people went through uh, are very vividly put forward in, uh, in Blackadder. But if it's taken in its entirety portrayals of general melchett for example as a proxy for hague he's often taken as that then it does reinforce lines led by donkey's view and people don't know that lots of senior officers were killed during the war that um the uh, british army got better in what was a very new kind of warfare for them they learned as the war went on Uh, officers did care about their men Uh, and ultimately Germany was militarily defeated by the Allies.
0: Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, who commanded the British Expeditionary Force from 1915 to the end of the war, is a controversial figure, variously viewed as a hero by some, a bungling fool by others. Professor Grayson says for some, their view of the war, and in particular Earl Haig, is fixed
6: if you look at haig's funeral in 1927 that more people were on the streets for haig's funeral than were for princess diana's funeral uh, much much later and we remember what that was like that's quite a a compelling uh, piece of evidence and i actually had an argument in the imperial war museum uh, just going through the exhibition as a member of the public, just last week with somebody. There's a dis- interesting display on Haig which points how views of him have changed. And a man came in at the very end of it and just saw the final bit saying something like, historians now view Haig as uh, somebody who transformed the British army into a fighting force that was capable of winning the war. And he just said, well, they're idiots, and Haig was a moron. So I just turned round to him, I was quite angry about it, and said, well, watch the rest of the film and from the start and you might change your view. And we had a bit of a discussion about it and he was just clearly uninterested in any alternative view that Haig actually learned and made progress and was not necessarily stupid from the beginning anyway. He says criticism heaped on Earl Haig is often ill-informed. There's a criticism, for example, that on the first day of the Battle of the Somme he had lunch. Well, he's a general behind the lines, taking strategic decisions uh, and also some tactical ones. Is anybody's interest served by Hay going without food today uh, as some kind of uh, uh, sacrifice for the men? And, and and if he had said, well, I'm not eating today because the men are going through hell, people would have said that that was really stark recompense for all, for all the deaths. So... Uh, and this is a, we have to remember as well that this is a war fought on a scale like no other, um, but the generals don 't have the kind of radio communications that would appear in the second world war, so they have to um, they have to be well away from the front because they have to be able to view things on a on a grand scale, but they can 't actually do anything very much about operations on a on a day by day or an hour by hour basis and I think that the um, criticisms of Hague are themselves quite ill-informed by the realities of war across the many miles of the Western Front.
0: Back in New Zealand, John Crawford, who's been the Defence Force's historian for 28 years, says it's important the commemorations represent the war accurately.
4: The problem with the Blackadder view is that it has just enough truth in it to give it a lot of currency, and of course you're dealing with an extremely funny television show which, you know, had a big impact on many people. I'm constantly surprised when I meet members of the public about the number of people that know an awful lot about the First World War, who have read lots of books, done research on their family or whatever, they know a lot. And then you get a lot of other people who would be hard put to identify where Gallipoli was.
0: If we're going to commemorate it, and these commemorations are costing millions of dollars, is it important that people, they remember it as it actually happened, that they don't have some sort of view of it that has been engendered by watching a television programme or whatever? Is it important or doesn't it matter?
4: (laughs) Well, I think it is important. I hope that over the next four years, the general level of knowledge and the public knowledge about the First World War will go up markedly.
0: Why is it important for something that happened
4: so long ago? Well, of course, you've got 18,000 dead New Zealanders straight off. And not just the dead, you've got all the wounded and all the other people that were affected by the war. So if you want to understand what it is to be a New Zealander in the 21st century, I think a good understanding of what happened 100 years ago is central to that.
0: For columnist Rosemary MacLeod, her ambivalence towards the commemorations is coloured by the potential for politicians to attach themselves to the sacrifices of the past, particularly at a time when New Zealanders are being committed to yet another Middle East conflict. It's rather distasteful. It's like borrowing from the the legitimacy of
3: that war, which is something that I think nobody disputes, and borrowing it and just leaving a little bit of luster to your latest adventure in the Middle East... It's cheap to me when I look at that. I
0: I think politicians should have a very limited role. Don McIver from the RSA acknowledges that too much political involvement could have a downside.
2: Well, I don't think you're ever going to avoid the all-round ceremonial involvement that there would be. And, I mean, it's always been a case that when you commemorate an event or New Zealand's commitment to a particular battle, you're inevitably going to have politicians who join you in that commemoration. But they're a part of the structure of New Zealand, and it's appropriate for them, as part of the structure, to be there for the commemoration, as long as they don't take it over. And, of course, I think the RSA and others will make sure that they don't do that.
0: He says it's also important to guard against any suggestion that there is glory in war.
2: We look at it uh, in terms of the remembrance of the sort of sacrifice that these people made. We look at it from the point of view of the folly of war. There are things that we should remember, but we've got to focus on what they mean uh, in terms of where New Zealand is going now. It shouldn't just be a commemoration of the past.
0: Isn't there some inevitability, though, when you're commemorating an event on that scale, that some sort of glory does attach to it, almost like a perverse outcome. Is there a danger of that? Yeah,
2: I I think it's inevitable that something like that is going to happen. I mean, if you have a family who realise that they had a great-grandfather who lost his life at Passchendaele and they've found the history and they have the ability to remember him, they'll remember that person positively. And for that family, it'll be a great event. But I still say that whilst that's happening and it'll happen around the country, we also have to focus forward from those events, take the lessons, take the positive issues out of it and apply those to how we live today and how we make decisions today.
0: I'm Gail Woods and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philip Tolley with technical production by Chris Keogh.